Hey guys, just before we get started, I wanted to kind of put a swear warning because I realize I do in fact swear a lot and I just kind of want to make sure if any kitties are listening that uh, you should probably stop now if unless you're a mature child. And also I'd like to say, uh, sorry mom, <laughs> let's get started with the episode. Long may she reign. Presented to you by Aidan Fitzgerald. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did you guys hear that? That is the sound of Aiden went grocery shopping. So she has Coca-Cola. Woo! Anyway, I hope you guys are doing very, very well today. Um, I am, since the last time we spoke. Guys, Taylor Swift is releasing a new album. I'm so, I'm so excited. I, I can't even... I can't even properly express how fucking excited I am. I mean... We we all know what we thought, okay? We we all clowned really, really hard. We thought she was going to uh, announce Reputation Taylor's version, which it's actually fine that she didn't because we're getting a new album anyway. I just want new music. New music is what I want. And honestly, I know this hasn't come out yet, but I think it's going to be the best thing she's ever put out. I mean, I've already, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Claimed? Claimed is the correct word, Yes. Uh, claimed a song. I'm really into Clara Bow, and that may or may not be a hint for a future episode coming out right around the time that uh, the new album comes out. So just uh, think on that until April. <laughs> anyway, what else? What else? What else? What else happened to me this week? Um, I've been really busy this week with, like, homework, and I've actually, I've been very productive. I didn't think I would be, but I have been very productive. Um, unfortunately, with homework, it has left me very little time to write podcast scripts for this episode. Sorry, for this podcast. Um, I'm hoping I can catch up on those sometime soon. Also, today I'm watching the Super Bowl. Very excited. Um, now, contrary to popular belief, I do like sports. I'm not an avid sports follower, but um, I certainly do like sports. Like, I'll watch the Olympics like a madman when the Olympics are on. But, like, 99% of the other time, I'm not really that into sports. But when big sports events happen, I'm suddenly the sportiest person you know. So I've, I'm having my own, like, little private Super Bowl party in my room. I bought chips and uh, cookies, and I'm excited for that. Anyway, enough about me. It's Black History Month, which means it's time to talk about some amazing black women throughout history. I mean, I do that on a regular basis, not just during Black History Month, but I feel like black women on this podcast deserve a special little time during this month to celebrate how awesome they are. And today, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about Ya Asentewa, Queen of the Ejetsu Tribe. Now, I hadn't heard of her before, um... 
I really started to like research her although no she was on my list so like I had an idea of who she was but I had never done like a deep dive about her and I wasn't really sure if I was gonna find her super interesting but I was fucking wrong and I actually realized that I had heard of the conflict that she was involved in which we'll we'll talk about in this episode. Yasentua was bad fucking ass like she is so cool and I'm so excited to be sharing her story with you guys today so let's get into it. Okay, so Yaasentawa, the queen mother of the Ajitsu, was born sometime in the year 1840 to Kaoku Empoma and his wife Atapo in the kingdom of the Ashanti. Now, we have absolutely no idea when her birthday is. In fact, we're not even sure if she was born in 1840. I saw estimates that she could have been born in 1860, but for mine and uh, your sanity, I have chosen 1840 as her birth year because... I think it's just easier, and it seems to be the most agreed upon, so that's what we're going to do for the rest of the episode, even though I wish someone, maybe her parents, had written down the day she was born. Um, speaking of her parents, let's get to know a bit about her family and her vibrant and rich culture, which I knew nothing about before this episode, but was very, very fun for me to learn about. Okay, I don't know if anyone is going to have a problem with this, but... Um, while I was writing this episode, I was watching um, episodes of the show Mixed-ish, because I'd never seen it, and I really liked the show Black, Blackish and Grownish, so I wanted to watch Mixed-ish, even though it's been out for a while, I'm pretty sure. And um, one of the characters in that show has the nickname Santi, and while I was writing this, I couldn't stop calling Ya Asentewa Santi, because like, the middle of her name sounds like Zan- Santi, so... I've, I've gotten so used to calling her Santi, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of this episode. I hope it doesn't bother anyone, but it's I, I like can't get it out of my head, you know? Um, also, I'm, I'm like not sure if Ya or Asentoa is her first name, because I'm not familiar with uh, naming conventions from the Ashanti people. Like, it could be a, like a Mary Kate Olsen situation. I don't know. I'm just going to refer to her as Santi for the rest of this episode because I think it's a cool nickname for her second name. Anyway, um, we don't really know much about Santi's parents other than the fact that she was born into nobility and was the oldest of her parents' two children as she had a little brother named Afra Tannen. Since we don't know much about her parents, I decided to look at the Ashanti culture as a clue to how Santi was raised and what most of her early life would have looked like. Now, the Ashanti people live in the center of the modern nation of Ghana and were revered warriors, but also very spiritual. Santi would have grown up with a very clear idea of her place in the world as women were revered in Ashanti culture. All children in Ashanti culture belong to their mother's clan and are said to inherit their father's spirit with their mother's blood. So we actually have a very, well, at least a partially matrilineal society here, which is cool. Usually the head of the household is the oldest man in your family, or whoever the oldest man appoints to be the head of the household. In terms of religion, Ashanti people practice a religion with a lot of spiritual and supernatural influences. They believe that plants and animals and trees have souls. They also believe in fairies, witches, and forest monsters, which is awesome. Kind of reminds me a lot of, like, um, um, pagan, like, Irish and Scottish like, um, beliefs with, like, the, the witches and the fairies and stuff like that. Um, amongst them, there are a variety of religious beliefs, including ancestors, higher gods, and the uh, Nayame, I think that's how you pronounce it, the supreme being of the Ashanti. Not to mention, there's the legend of the golden stool, but we'll get to why that's important in a second. 
Now, in terms of education, boys, like Santi's brother, were meant to start their education by the age of eight or nine and would start off by being taught a skill of their father's choice. Additionally, drums were an important part of all Ashanti people's education, as drums help tell stories and teach the Ashanti language and prepare warriors for battle. Girls, on the other hand, learned more domestic skills to help keep communities going, such as cooking, housekeeping, not to mention many girls were tribal leaders, which made them huge landowners. And they needed to have farming skills to manage all of that land, which Santi would have been taught by her mother. Now, in most cultures I read about, when I get to the traditional clothing section, I'm used to seeing a very female-dominated industry, but shockingly to me, in Ashanti culture, it's actually up to men to weave and create fabric. Women were permitted to pick materials and make thread, but they did not weave. That was a man's job. And boy, did they make some beautiful fucking fabrics. Um, their fabric could indicate social status, clan, or gender. If you have not seen Ashanti traditional clothing, I fucking implore you right now to go and Google it. Because it is fucking moto bene. It's gorgeous. It's fucking beautiful. Um, the Ashanti people make a type of pattern called kente cloth, which has this, like, really cool-looking, like, pattern with all these beautiful colors. Uh, Sante would have been, uh, familiar with this pattern and likely would have worn garments made for her by male relatives, like her father or her brother. Now, for the most part, Santi would have grown up in a society that valued women's participation in religion and government. Pretty much the only thing Santi wasn't allowed to do was be a warrior. Not because they didn't think women were capable of being fierce warriors, although they did sometimes think that. Uh, but it was mostly because uh, women were so important to the home front that they could not be taken away during wars. Women were an important part of governmental and social life, and were used to much more freedom than some women are granted, which I just, I just love. Um, in terms of Santi's looks, we don't have many pictures of her that I'm 100% certain are of her, which I think is unfortunate, because she was, she was born in a time where photography was becoming a thing, so I think it's just, it's like weird that we don't have any, like, 100% confirmed photographs, at least that I could find. Um, however, we do have, you know, modern artistic depictions of her and oral traditions, not to mention a lot of statues dedicated to her in Ghana. Um, one of which is the, uh, the cover art for this episode. So we have a slight pic uh, picture of at least what people thought she looked like. Um, I personally, you know, from all the depictions I've been seeing of her, I imagine her as being quite pretty, uh, dark skin, dark eyes, um, adorned with a lot of beautiful and colorful jewelry, you know, kente cloth wrapped around her, ready to fight for her people <laughs> against Europeans trying to encroach on their land. Go, Santi. Go, Santi. <laughs> anyway, as Santi grew into adulthood, she did all the typical things expected of an Ashanti woman. She was married in her late teens or early 20s to a nobleman from the village of Kumasi in a polyamorous marriage, which was fairly common for the time. She had a daughter named Ama with her husband, and I wish I could tell you her husband's name, but it seems that the specific information on that does not exist. <laughs> uh, like a lot of things about <laughs> Santi, so moving on. Um, during her marriage, she became a very prominent farmer in the area where she was married, cultivating many crops and being a very, very respected landowner. She has succeeded one of her female relatives as the chief of the village of Edueso, which was an inherited title likely given to her by either her mother or her grandmother sometime in the 1880s. Her brother was also named chief of the village, but he was appointed chief by the king, not by inheritance. Now, Santi and her brother worked together as co-chiefs to better their village and used their collective power and prestige to support one another. 
Now, because of uh, Santi's brother Afrin's power as chief, he got his sister named as the Queen Mother of the Ashanti. Now, on this podcast, you guys might be familiar with the title of Queen Mother. Generally, it is a title that refers to a woman who is married to the king and is now the mother of a king. But in Ashanti culture, it was a little different when we think about a queen mother. The Queen Mother title was more similar to the uh, the beloved woman title in Cherokee culture, like we, uh, the one we talked about with Nanyi, meaning uh, Santi, as cousin to the current king of the Ashanti, was now a spiritual leader who holds her own court and directed and supervised all matters concerning women in the kingdom. Not to mention she is the only person who can reprimand the ruling king. So basically, she is a lot like the mother of this king, except not having, like, that biological mother-son connection. However, her most important duty was the protection of the Golden Stool. Now, before we get into the Golden Stool, let's talk about da-da-da-da, the British. (laughs) Oh, the British. Causing trouble where they aren't wanted and fucking life up for everyone else. Now, as with most stories in the colonial period, the British are the villains in this story, and they pretty much spend this whole story fucking up Santi's life. But first, let's go back to how the British got to Ghana in the first place. Now, the British came to what they call the Gold Coast in the late 1700s and established rich trading posts in the area. The Ashanti wanted a piece of that action, so they started making trade deals with the British in order to enrich themselves. Unfortunately, over time, the British overreached themselves, as they do, and conflict began between the two groups, leading to four Anglo-Ashanti wars. The first happened before Ashanti was even born. Basically, the British refused all Ashanti attempts to negotiate fair trade deals, and a guy named Sir Charles McCarthy decided to invade Ashanti territory. He not only lost, but his skull was taken as a trophy. That skull was dipped in gold and was used as a drinking cup by some chiefs, which pissed off the British. But honestly, I think that's kind of iconic of the British, uh, sorry, of the Ashanti. I mean, not only to uh, kill the colonizer that's bothering you, but to uh, make a drinking cup out of his skull is really fucking badass. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, this action pissed off the British, and... Then, the Ashanti got stuck in over eight decades of conflict between themselves and the British. Now, initially, when Santi was growing up, the two groups were at peace, but tensions started heating up again, causing more conflicts, and the most recent one in the 1870s had seen an Ashanti king uh, de-stooled, not dethroned, um, and the capital of the Ashanti was burned and ransacked by the British, because that's what the British do, ladies and gentlemen. Hold on, I gotta take a drink. (sighs) Refreshing. Hey, Coca-Cola, you want to give me, like, a brand deal? Because, like, I'd really appreciate it. (laughs) Anyway, um, the British now felt themselves firmly in control and started demanding things like forced labor, um, taxes, unfair trade deals, because that's, again, what the British do. Uh, Not to mention, a civil war for the main Ashanti throne had happened until the I was crowned in 1888, and Santi was appointed as his queen mother, thanks to her brother. Now, it was a chaotic situation for anyone to deal with, especially Santi and her brother, but it got worse when Santi's brother died in 1894, and their village was left without its male leader. Now, Santi used her influence to make sure her eldest grandson, Kofi, was made chief of her village, and he became a strong ally of the crown after his appointment to that position. He was like a little boy, too. I think like a teenager or something like that. Um, anyway, going into the late 1890s and 1900s, the British were sick of war and wanted total and complete surrender of the Ashanti people. 
They demanded that they not only give up their sovereignty, but hand over the ultimate symbol of royal power, da -da -da -da, the golden stool. Okay, guys, now it's time to talk about this damn stool. Now, according to legend, the golden stool appeared in the lap of the first king of the Ashanti Confederacy after it was called down from the heavens by a shaman and serves as a reminder of royal power. Now, the golden stool is, and I can't express this enough, an incredibly sacred item to the Ashanti people. No one, not even the king, is allowed to sit on it. And it has never touched the ground, and it's always placed on top of an animal skin to protect it from the ground. The British absolutely knew that it was an important item to the Ashanti, and they also knew that taking it away from them would mean victory and also a nice profit for them because it was literally a giant stool made out of gold. Now, naturally, uh, the king, Krimpe, refused... Uh, the British request to hand it over, but unfortunately, the British were like, uh, sorry dude, that's not gonna work, and arrested and exiled Prempe and all his nobles, including Santi's grandson, who she was incredibly close to. I think she, that Kofi was her oldest grandson, too, so that would've, would've sucked. Um, also, poor Santi's daughter having her son fucking exiled, like, without her permission, that's, that's awful. Um, Santi would spend several years trying to go negotiate with the British, as she was the de facto head of the country while the king was in exile, but the British refused to release the king, or her grandson, or really, in general, listen to a random woman that they didn't, you know, acknowledge the authority of. The final straw came when the British not only asked for the golden stool again, but the British governor, who was in complete control of the palace, actually sat on the stool. That motherfucker! What the- <laughs> This statement by the British caused Santi to call a meeting of the remaining nobles about what to do about the situation. At the meeting, she gave this speech to rally the men to war, and I'm gonna, you know, beautifully recreate this. You guys aren't even ready for this. All right, you ready? <clears throat> How can a proud and brave people like the Ashanti sit back and look while white men take away their king and their chiefs and humiliate them with demand for the golden stool? The golden stool only means money to the white man. They have searched and dug for it everywhere. I shall not pay one credit to the governor. If you, the chiefs of the Ashanti, are going to behave like cowards and not fight, you should exchange your loincloths for my undergarments. What a fucking speech, man. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Basically, what Santi is saying is to saddle the fuck up. We got business to take care of, and if you guys don't want to deal with it because you're afraid, take off those fancy loincloths and let the women do the work. Yes. Now, Santi's speech was so good that it rallied the men behind her and started a war that has become actually one of my favorite named wars in history. The War of the Golden Stool, baby. Ha <laughs> ha. Now, for the first time in Ashanti history, a woman was proclaimed chief of the army, which, uh, as I mentioned before, was unheard of because women were not involved in war in Ashanti culture. It just wasn't their place. However, desperate times call for desperate measures, and Santi was at the head of this thing, so she may as well lead the army, I mean, if she's already calling the shots. Now, in the beginning, she turned her village state at Weso into the headquarters of the resistance, as the British had established themselves in the capital of Kumasi. As there was much fear of the British initially, many of the Ashanti men refused to join their state armies and fight with Santi. So she decided to persuade them by telling wives to withhold sex from their husbands until they stopped being cowards and joined her, which actually worked. And I gotta say, that's that's a smart fucking tactic. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought of that. For sure, I mean. Go Santi. 
Now, this war also marked the first time the Ashantis used stockades, with them building one outside each village and using them as traps against the British. Gandhi also made it a point to send out generals and troops to monitor strategic points in and around Kumasi. She also ordered a siege of the British fort in Kumasi, preventing food and ammunition supplies from reaching the British that resided in the fort, including the governor, so they could not fight from the inside, and eventually this won her the capital back, which is very smart. You know, you take out their, um, their lifelines outside, they can only, you know, shut themselves in for so long in a walled city forever. Um, Santi also subverted traditional Shanti views about women on the battlefield and was often seen on horseback with a gun, although she never fired it, um, but I feel like she could have had the opportunity arised. Um, Santi was also very, very good at psychological warfare and used those, uh, talking drums I was talking about that they used to, um, teach the Ashanti language and uh, music and oral history. Um, they used those drums to scare the living crap out of the British during the battle. Um, one beat uh, was reported to mean prepare to die, and three beats meant cut the head off, and four beats meant the head is off. Now very quickly, the British learned what the little beats coming from the jungle <laughs> meant and the drum beat started to freak them out because uh they were very worried they were about to get their heads chopped off if they heard a specific amount of beats coming from nowhere <laughs> um unfortunately the war on the ashanti uh turned around on them initially ashanti was doing very well um until she wasn't, because, you know, the British. And Santi was forced to move her base of operations as the British closed in on them. Now, the British started making uh, ground back up by conquering Ashanti villages one by one with the help of the Hasu and Sikh armies they had imported into Ghana from their vast colonial empire, and the help of uh, several treacherous Ashanti chiefs and everyday men who revealed her tactics and hideouts to the British for rewards Fucking cowards. Eventually, in the early fall of 1900, Santi was forced to surrender after she learned the British had captured her daughter Amma and a few of her other grandchildren. At the time of her surrender, Santi had, con had control over the Golden School, and once again the British demanded that she hand it over to them. She agreed, but Santi was actually being uh, tricky. Like Odysseus. <laughs> Sorry, I read the Odyssey this week for a class, and I can't stop thinking about Odysseus. Anyway, um, the Ashanti delivered a fake golden stool to the British and hid the real one for over 20 years until it was discovered by railroad workers and vandalized. But it was restored to the capital where it has sat for the last hundred years and is still used in traditional ceremonies in Ghana today. So that's good. Although, sad it got vandalized. But at least they were able to hide it for 20 years. Now, following the end of the war, Santi and other rebels were sent into exile with the former king and other nobles in the Seychelles Islands, which are all the way in the Indian Ocean, if you haven't been there. They are several hundred miles away from Ghana. It's very, very, I imagine, isolating place. I mean, the Seychelles are beautiful, but to be forced away from your home to, like, a quite a remote island chain because you lost a war that you were initially doing so well at must absolutely suck. Now, according to oral accounts, her beloved grandson was not there when she arrived in the Seychelles, which made her, which made her, I'm sorry, very sad, because, as I mentioned, Santi loved her grandson, Kofi. She loved that kid. Now, I don't know what happened to him, but he was not on that island when she got there. Uh, maybe killed or went somewhere else? I have no idea. 
Now, Santi spent the next 20 years of her life in very, very great sorrow. Um, exiled far from her home, far from many of her family members. There are even some rumors she converted to Christianity and took the name Josephine, which, again, kind of sucks. Because I doubt that she wanted to convert to Christianity, but maybe she felt she had to. Because she was, like, kind of under, like, house arrest when she was in the Seychelles. Speaking of the word Seychelles, does anyone think that, like, Seychelles is, like, a really cool name? Like, I know, is, <laughs> does that bring out, like, the white woman in me <laughs> to think that Seychelles sounds like a pretty name? Anyway, eventually Santi would die in October of 1921, October 17th to be specific, uh, probably of old age. She was anywhere between uh, 60 and 80, depending on when you think she was born. Um, Santi lived a very, very hard life fighting for her people. Uh, even though we don't know much about her, um, she did so many great things, and I think she would be happy to know how thankful the people in Ghana are for her rebellion, and what an icon she is in Ghana. Like, I can't even express how much people in Ghana just love her so much. Now, in terms of legacy, I can't even begin to describe how beloved she is, especially now that Ghana is an independent nation free from British rule. Now, Ghana likes to celebrate her as a hero and a good example of female leadership to inspire Ghanaian women to be more like her. In 2000, the 100th year anniversary of the War of the Golden Stool, the Ya Asentewa Festival was celebrated all throughout Ghana. The festival included the Ya Asentewa Museum launch, an international conference, a women's convention, and a funeral service for Santi's remains, which were returned in 1924 when the exiled court was allowed to return to Ghana. The First Lady of Ghana in 2000, Nana Konadu Rowling, unveiled the Yasentua Museum alongside her daughters in the year 2000. The Yasentua Girls Secondary School was established in Kumasi in 1960 with funds from the Ghana Education Trust and continues to educate women in Ghana. Santi has an endearing cultural legacy in Ghana that will likely never be forgotten, and I hope you guys don't forget it either. Thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode. I'm sorry it's a little short. <laughs> Maybe it's because I was talking too fast. I don't know. <laughs> but I hope you guys really enjoyed this story because I know I really enjoyed researching it. And Santi is she's just such a cool lady. I mean, to to rally her people behind her like that. Uh, to defy colonial rule when the British are like at the top of their game at this point is just an incredible thing for her to do. And um, I hope that this episode leads you guys to want to look into her more, because I certainly would. There's probably stuff I missed. It, it happens. But thank you guys so much for listening to this episode, and I will see you guys in two weeks with a brand new episode. Happy Black History Month. Goodbye. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you have any suggestions for topics, you can just DM me on Twitter at LongMasonRain2. The N at the end of rain is replaced with a 2 instead. I'm also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and like a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, don't forget to rate and review this podcast on all those platforms. It really actually does help the show so much and it will help me grow my audience. So I would absolutely appreciate it if you you guys could do that. All right. Uh, bye.